With the Chase Inc. Business Unlimited credit card, you get unlimited 1.5% cash back on every purchase. It's so simple, you don't even have to think about it. So think about opening your shop early. Earlier. Don't think about the 1.5% cash back. Think about automating some of your operations. Think about delivering across town, across country, across oceans. Think about every part of your business, except the one part that works without a thought. Your Inc. Business Unlimited card. Learn more at chase.com slash inc. Restrictions and limitations apply. Offers subject to change. Cards are issued by JPMorgan Chase Bank and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. You told me right now I could wind back the clock 25 years, knowing I would end up losing my leg someday. I'd do it all over again because, man, what a ride. They just shot a barrage of small arms fire and RPGs into the air. I heard the uh, small arms hit my side of the cockpit first. I looked over at the pilot in command, and I don't know if I can swear in your podcast or not, but I used good army language, you know, and said, hey, we've been effing hit. And then, boom, the, uh, the RPG landed in my lap. I was passing in and out the whole time as we were flying together on the ground. The last thing I remember is trying to do a emergency engine shut down after we got the bird on the ground and then I passed out. I own this situation. I'm in charge of this and I'm going to laugh at this and you're not going to sit here and pity me and feel sorry for me because I always said that, look, don't pity me in my wheelchair. I earned this wheelchair and I'm going to run you over with it (laughs) if I have to. (laughs) As much as we all hated taking orders while we were in the military, So many veterans leave the service and ironically feel like we don't have a mission anymore. We don't feel like we have someone telling us what we need to do. And the reality is, it's not just veterans. Everyone wants to feel like they have a reason for being here. But the rigidity of a life in uniform makes it harder for vets when we hang up our boots to feel that emptiness of not having an azimuth to follow. But I don't think service ends when civilian life begins again. It's just different. Now, that service may take on a new form. You might become a teacher or a doctor or, God forbid, even a comedian. But today, I'm talking to someone who's devoted their post-military life to fighting for vets as a legislator. Some of you might already know the story of Senator Tammy Duckworth. She set out to be a combat pilot, deployed to Iraq. Months into her deployment, she was shot down, took an RPG, to the cockpit of her Blackhawk. Lost both her legs, nearly lost an arm. She's experienced pain just like so many vets have, and she has firsthand knowledge of what we call the suck and how to embrace it. And when we were out there in the sand in the desert, you know, the saying was, own the suck. It sucks to be here, but own it, it's yours, and own it and be the master of it. This is Battle Scars, and I'm Tom Tran. I served in the U.S. Army, deployed to Iraq, and took a sniper's bullet to the back of my head my fourth day in country. It's been over a decade since that gunfight, and I've told that story hundreds of times. There's still things about my life in combat that I haven't shared with anyone. And in this show, I talk to other veterans of our recent wars, and maybe 
put into words some of those things that we've never said about those experiences. Good morning. Good morning, Senator. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time and, and coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I wanted to start by telling you I went to the VA the other day because uh, uh-huh. I hurt myself. <laughs> my, my doctor, who I've seen, been seeing for years, he, uh, he's a fan of the show, fan of the podcast. And he said, uh, I like the show. Who do you have coming on? And I said, well, I'm interviewing Senator Duckworth. And he says, the Blackhawk pilot that lost her legs. I said, yeah. And he goes, what are you in here for today? I hurt my knee running. <laughs> and he said, how do you feel about yourself, Rambo? I was like, I feel great. So my, uh, my doctor is looking forward to hearing this talk. Oh, all right. Well, we better perform well. <laughs> and speaking of the VA, you've done a ton of work trying to help those of us who come back and, and, and need assistance from the VA. And you and I both know more than most people that wounded vets are in a very difficult position because as veterans and combat veterans, especially we come back and we don't want to be treated differently, but we do get put in these positions where we need help from the VA. We are, we are wounded, but we don't ask for help. Uh, I know personally as a purple heart recipient and a, a wounded soldier, when I came home, I did not ask for help. And, um, I'd like to hear what you think about how we, we can help fix that, that belief by some of us that, that we shouldn't be the ones asking for help, because I know you've done so much work with the VA. Right. And, and I still go to VA for my health care. It's my primary health care. I have my health care provided to me by the taxpayers as a senator with my health insurance plan, but I actually turn that over to VA and I go to VA because I, I feel so strongly about supporting and enhancing VA and making sure that I have the same experience as my fellow vets. But to your question, look, the very same things that make our warriors, the greatest warriors of any military on the face of the earth, is the same thing that hurts us when we come home, right? Our guys are tough. They're, you know, How many times have, have you talked about being mentally tough and physically strong as a soldier? How many times you know, have, have you in, in your military career ignored the physical discomforts? Because that's what you have to do to do your job and to keep yourself and your buddies alive. And those are all things that are admirable and it's what makes you tough. But then when our warriors come home, those very same qualities are the ones that actually prevent them from receiving the care that they need. There are two popular t-shirts that a lot of the guys wore in the amputee ward, um, me included. Uh, One was various different x-rays of either their amputated limbs or their crushed bones. And it said, walk it off (laughs) 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 on a shirt, you know, so they they would like take the x-ray of this femur that is in about 25 different pieces and held together by pins and it said walk it off another among the amputees was the uh, the black knight from Monty python it says come on back here it's just a flesh wound and, you know all four limbs are missing <laughs> merely a flesh um, wound yeah <laughs> you know and, and that's sort of the way it was but, but my my own doctor years later i you know we became friends he said you know you were a really tough patient to take care of because every time i asked you if everything was okay you was like yes sir i'm great sir let me at him when can i get out of this hospital bed and go back to flying my black hawk and, and he's like and you had no legs <laughs> and you would never tell me the truth about how much you were how much pain you were really in that's the shift we have to help our veterans make. Admitting the pain and admitting the help that you need, or even allowing somebody to recognize and help you recognize the help that you need, it's not a sign of weakness. Mm-hmm. It's actually a sign of strength. So that you can actually get better and then 
return to being that warrior that you've always been. But but everything that we did in the military that helped us to excel are the same things that end up hindering us as patients. Right. Do you think that gallows humor that you had and still have, I've seen other t-shirts that mm. you have <laughs> regarding <laughs> being an amputee, that dark humor that you have might help transition us better into you know these civilian lives where where life has changed. I mean, I personally became a stand-up comedian after I left the military because that was my way of dealing with the friends that I've lost, the injuries I received in combat. And clearly you and the other folks in the ward use that as a mechanism to deal with it as well. Yeah, it's just a different way of owning the suck. That gallows humor was just a way for us to be strong. Even sitting there in a hospital bed hooked up to machines and IVs and everything was just a way to show, no, I own this situation. I'm in charge of this and I'm going to laugh at this and you're not going to sit here and pity me. I always said that, look, don't pity me in my wheelchair. I earned this wheelchair and I'm going to run you over with it (laughs) if I have to. Can we talk about why you became a combat pilot? It's so interesting to me. My my father was a, a pilot in Vietnam in the Air Force. So of mm-hmm. course I joined the Army because because uh, that's what yeah. you do <laughs> when your father's an Air Force <laughs> pilot. Yeah. Why did you lean towards a combat role? You know, I was being commissioned in the early 90s, right at the time when the conversation about whether or not women would be allowed to serve in combat was happening. When I was being commissioned, I was the only female in my class of a little over a dozen cadets. And we sat down to write down what job we wanted to apply for. I always thought I would go Signal Corps. I thought, or I would become a linguist because I speak several Asian languages. Mm-hmm. And as I was sitting there, the major, you know, he said to the class, like, all right, guys, I don't care what you put down, but of your top 10, seven have to be combat branches, uh, except for Duckworth. She's a female. Females don't have to serve in combat. You can put down whatever you want, Duckworth. And I just felt in that moment, a real sense of unfairness to the guys Mm -hmm. because there were guys there who were accounting majors who wanted to become finance officers and I had to put down infantry, you know, (laughs) they had no choice. I was going to get equal pay for equal work with equal rank. I was going to wear a butter bar just like everyone else, but I didn't have to face the same, the same dangers. I said, well, are there any combat branches open to women? He said, well, air defense, artillery and aviation, they look like they're going to lift the ban on women serving in combat positions in aviation sometime in the next two years. This is 1992. And so I said, well, then sign me up for aviation. So I, that's what I applied for. And what's interesting is that you had to take an aptitude test. And I ended up scoring really, really well on the aptitude test. But I would never have taken the test had it not been for just this sense of it was just unfair to the guys and I, and I should face equal risk. And so I ended up as a helicopter pilot and loved every minute of it. On the day. When mm-hmm. when you lost your legs, did you, did you even for a second think, oh, I should have put something else down on that wish list of, <laughs> of MOSs? No. Even today, if you asked me, I'd do it all over again. I would. If you, if you told me right now I could wind back the clock 25 years and go back to flight school, knowing I would end up losing my legs someday, I'd do it all over again because, man, what a ride. What a, what a privilege it was. I gained so much more from my service than I ever gave up. And I I truly, sincerely believe that in in the core of my being, because at the end of the day, it wasn't about the legs. It was about the guys I served with, guys and gals. It was about getting to represent my country. It was about owning a little bit 
more of this democracy than someone who didn't serve right. and having a little more skin in the game. Can you can you tell me about that mission where you lost your legs? Sure. It was really a really good day. We'd been in country. I've been in country, I think, 10 months to the day. I flew in on my birthday on March 12th and I got hit on November 12th. They always start as a good day. Yeah. And, and I was getting to fly with a crew that I love to fly with, the pilot in command, the warrant officer. It's kind of funny because he had, when he his first job in Desert Storm, he also crashed a Black Hawk. And then, and then later on, he crashed two more Hawks. And then with me, and we always joke that, you know, one more, he's considered an ace as he'd taken down five aircraft. Of course, they were all American Black Hawks. Yeah. But, At what point um, do they go, we're, we're not going to let you fly anymore? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was a great crew. And he was he was such a tactical pilot. And, and I loved the crew that I was with. We even got to stop in the green zone and get milkshakes, you know, and we never get to do that and have lunch. And I didn't know that that milkshake and that stir fry lunch I, was me the last meal I was going to eat for, you know, a month or so. But it was a really, really good day. And then we were headed home. We were done with our missions. You know, we reported at like zero five in the morning and this was about four in the afternoon. And and we were headed back and we got the call that said, hey, can you divert to Taji? This was during the bulk of the fighting for the second battle for Fallujah. And, and they said, look, we need to get some guys. Um, they need a ride up north where you pick them up because the roads were dangerous. People were dying in convoy, you know, and IEDs and stuff. And we were headed home from a different route than what we had planned. And we went along a route that uh, we were unfamiliar with, um, a, a route that was directed to us. And uh, the bad guys had been watching Blackhawks fly over them all day long. And they just shot a barrage of small arms fire and RPGs into the air. And I heard the uh, small arms hit my side of the cockpit first. And I... You know, looked over at the pilot in command, and I don't know if I can swear on your podcast or not, but please, <laughs> I, I use I I use good army language, you know, and said, "Hey, we've been effing hit," and mm. and then boom, the uh, the RPG landed in my lap, just vaporized my right leg and kicked my left leg up into instrument panel, amputated it, took off the rest of my right arm, most of my right arm, and we were able to land the aircraft. And the last thing I remember is trying to do a emergency engine shutdown after we got the bird on the ground and then I passed out. I, I was passing in and out the whole time as we were flying the last uh, about two minutes to get her on the ground. And Dan Milberg ended up with a, a DFC that day and, and I'm so proud of him and grateful to him every day for saving my life. And we all got home though. Hey, I just want to take a quick second to tell you about this cool show I'm listening to called Backstory. It's a history show with real historians. I am talking Yale and Johns Hopkins level historians. They take real events from the past and make them relatable to us today. And they cover a whole hell of a lot of ground. They explore what our ancestors thought about race and drugs and, my personal favorite, even how they thought about UFOs. And the cool thing is, they'll often come across problems that we think, uh, these are these are unique to us. Nobody's ever had to deal with this before. Turns out, these are the same things people have been grappling with since the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. There's one episode that really talks to me. It's about how veterans have been treated over the centuries and what people thought about post-traumatic stress before we even knew what psychology was. To listen to the show, just reach for Backstory in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Now let's get back to Battle Scars. What was the recovery process like? It was tough. It was grueling. It was 
you know, it's, it's never ending. I'm still recovering. But the best thing about it was that I was with other wounded at Walter Reed and we were all there together. And I was afforded the time to transition into a civilian life because I was at the hospital for over a year. My buddies who actually came home without injuries or, or wounds that you could see, they didn't get that. They came home when they had two weeks at DMOB and then they were in the civilian world. I got over a year to slowly figure out what was going to happen with my life. And so in many ways, it was an advantage to be wounded. I remember <laughs> you saying... I don't care if a transgender person pulled me out of that wreckage, a soldier is a soldier, or something along those lines. And yeah. you've been a huge advocate, of, especially, I mean, just going into the career field that you did, you picked a combat arms role just for the equality of it, just to make it equal and fair for literally the guys that you were serving with. You take it upon yourself to bring that equality to as many people who want to serve in the military as possible. I do, because it's what makes our military great. It's why we dominate. It's why we can get out there because we don't turn somebody away because of who they are, who they love, and what God they pray to. We just ask, can you do the job? Can you pick up this 120-pound load you know, and hump it the, the 12 miles or whatever it is? Can you change the tire on this helmet? Can you fly this aircraft? Can you turn this wrench? And if you can do it and you're willing to lay down your life and put your body on the line for your country, then good for you. Go do it. You know what? Less than one half of 1% of Americans serve in uniform. Mm -hmm. Less than one half of 1% uh, are in uniform right now. And, and we can't afford to turn away anybody who is willing and capable to do the job. And at the end of the day, this country and what we stand for is a democracy and the ideals of who we are. At its basis is equality. Now, our founding fathers never actually implemented equality in the way that they wrote about and spoke about. But it's upon us to do that. Mm -hmm. And, and the strength of America compared to the rest of the world is the fact that we should have equal access to the judicial system. We all have equal access to all aspects of life. And so it's only right that our military does the same. And, and, and frankly, we're stronger because of it. Does it concern you at all the way, I mean, it concerns, I can tell you it concerns me. We have a commander in chief who has openly degraded people who want to serve in this military. It's He's a guy who took multiple deferments during Vietnam. My father was a prisoner of war in Vietnam. And you have someone who clearly does not think highly of anyone less than a general. Yeah. Well, one of the things about the freedoms of being Americans is that you're also free to be ignorant. Mm. I'm no fan of the president. Certainly, I'm no fan of his avoidance of military service. While I do not support a draft, I do think we lost something when we lost the mandatory requirement for national service. And I've introduced legislation to implement a new uh, voluntary national service program. And so that it's not necessarily just service in the military. You could go, you know, work for Habitat for Humanity or the Red Cross or something in exchange for, for some college money. Service takes you out of your world that you grew up in and puts you in a bunk next to somebody that you don't even know in a barracks, uh, people from all backgrounds, and you become a team and you become battle buddies. And we need more of that in this country. And, and it doesn't have to be the military. But I think that we lost something when we lost the uh, component of service as a shared experience for a young person growing up in this country. It seems like, and it's especially because so few of us do serve in the military, that we're all comfortable my we, I mean Americans as gener in a general mm -hmm. term, have become comfortable living in our bubbles. 
I have friends back home in my hometown who've never left my hometown. That seems to be what has happened to the entire country. And I see far too much, this is my group, this is my group, but not enough, this is my country. Or that this is my group and my country is this group. Right. People say, you know, if you don't have, you know, a completely liberal worldview, then you're not truly American. Or if you're not completely conservative, then you're not truly American. And there's a lack of acceptance of other viewpoints. And then people have started to become far more sectioned off. But it takes people being uncomfortable because opening yourself up to viewpoints that are not your own and your family's own is not an easy thing to do. And we just have to not let intolerance take over when that happens. And just recognize, you know, someone from a completely different background isn't wrong. Mm-hmm. They just have different opinions than, than we do and, and have actually have good dialogue. It's one of the regrets I have here in the Senate is that, you know, when I came to the Senate and people said, well, you know, there is more, it's more about relationships. You're going to get to know other senators and it's much more of a, an institution where there's more bipartisanship. And unfortunately, I haven't found it to be that way in my this first year in office. It is very partisan. I rarely get to have bipartisan conversations with my colleagues on the other side of the aisle. And, and you know, I'm reaching out and, and trying to sit down with them. But but it's not the way it used to be. And, 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 I, and we've lost something when we lose the ability to listen to the other side. That makes me sad that, to think that the—I <laughs> know backdoor deals aren't what we want, but, like, in my mind— Yes, the Republicans and Democrats, we, they yell at each other in public and on TV. But in my mind, I would like to think that, you know, over lunch, over coffee, somewhere, they're like, okay, well, let's make a deal. And Well, that's the way it should be. If you look at, um, well, three of my great senatorial heroes are Senators Hart, Senator Dole, and Senator Daniel Inouye. Three senators, all three of them served in World War II. All three were wounded, and they actually recovered in the same army hospital. And then went home, you know, to Hawaii, to Kansas, and became, um, and, and sort of went through law school, used their, all three used their GI bills, you know, all of those mm-hmm. things. And then they ended up in the United States Senate together. And they, across party lines, worked very hard and passed all sorts of good legislation for this country. Mm-hmm. And were able to find a way to common ground and then showed what it meant to put country above all else. They're, they're my legislative heroes. And I look at what they were able to do that helped to put in place the foundations of who we are as a nation today. I'm a stand-up comedian by trade, and, and my job mm-hmm. is to make people laugh. A couple of issues that have come up lately that I, f- like I, haven't, I felt like I couldn't stay mm-hmm. in, the, in the fray. One of the points that I've tried to make to people is that, again, 0.5% of the population serves in the military. But it seems that every time I turn around, someone is defending veterans. Somebody is invoking the name of veterans. Somebody is using our service Mm -hmm. to politicize their beliefs. Yes. And every argument I've had, it's always, don't speak for me. I put my right hand up. I served in combat. I bled for this country. Do not speak for me because 99.5% of the population did not put on the uniform. So if you think that the 0.5% of us that did need you to speak for us, then you don't think very highly of veterans. And mm-hmm. the, it's the, the politicizing of our service that has just infuriated me more than anything else. And we do have people like the president who got deferments. And other politicians who claim 
faux patriotism when they didn't themselves serve? How are you combating that politicizing of, of your service and our service? That's it, right, is, is, is to speak up. And then when I've been asked about, you know, the issue of the NFL protests, I said, look, at the core of why I serve was to defend people's rights to protest. To me, it's more patriotic than even serving in the military. The most patriotic thing you can do is to speak up and speak your mind and fight for what you believe in. That's how we became a country. My family has served this country on my dad's side, you know, in uniform, going back to the revolution. We became a country because people spoke their minds and rejected tyranny and, and refused to be told we had to say what we needed to think and had other people speak for us. We spoke up for ourselves. That's true patriotism. Uh, now, would I burn the flag or would I take a knee? No, but that's my expression. Don't you tell me how I should express myself. Let me tell you, I always say, you know, I, I would never burn the flag, but I would die to defend someone else's right to burn the flag. And that's important to me. Well, as a fellow combat veteran, I would like to say thank you for being the voice literally for us up on the hill. I'm just a comedian. Uh, I could speak my voice at the Laugh Factory a couple times a week, but you were doing the Lord's work and helping us when we come home. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we uh, wrap up? Because I know you have to get going. Well, you're my brother in arms and, and, and you keep speaking up and I'll keep speaking up. And, and together in, in our own ways, we're going to continue to serve this country and, and keep her great. I get a lot of messages from people online who see my stand-up or they see my career, where it is now, and they say, hey man, great job, or you are a great example of veteran success, things like that. And they think it's an overnight thing because they're just now seeing what I do for a living. But where I am now has been a 12-year ordeal to get over, around, and often through the problems I had when I got back from the war. My first two or three years home were worse than the 12 months I was in country. I'm not going to lie. I came home and I fell into a bottle. I was comfortable there. But if I had stayed comfortable, I wouldn't be here now. I wouldn't be able to keep helping soldiers and veterans. I wouldn't be able to keep leading the way an NCO should. Senator Duckworth could have fallen into the same traps. For Christ's sake, she lost both her legs in an RPG attack flying a helicopter. That is about as badass as it gets. And she rightfully could have rested on those laurels. She could have stayed in her bubble. But instead, she took her recovery time to think about what she could do to continue leading and caring for soldiers and veterans. Despite her injuries, she saw a silver lining in the end of her service and began a new path to serving. It's not wrong to take the time to recover from whatever physical or emotional wounds we received in war. But staying in that bubble of comfort, that's not what we do as service members. We were built and trained to move forward and to secure the objective. You just have to figure out what your objective is now, even if it's uncomfortable. But we didn't put on the uniform to be comfortable. We put it on so that others could be. Battle Scars is a Panoply podcast produced by Ryan Dilly, Shara Morris, and A.C. Valdez. Special thanks to Panoply's chief content officer, Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to Battle Scars. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And then grab the phone of the person next to you and subscribe them too. That'd be a big help. Thanks. Thanks.